story behind the story. I'm Clara Shirley Appel. My guest today, Cheryl Harowitz, is an artist and retired social worker living in Alameda. A few years ago, she published her debut novel, When the Magpie Calls. The story of a nine-year-old girl named Morgwith with special abilities and a remarkable connection to animals, for which she is bullied by her peers and targeted by supernatural forces who see her as a threat. But as Morgwith begins to accept herself and her differences, she discovers a wellspring of strength that serves her well in her adventures. Cheryl, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start by asking how you came to write this book. What motivated you to write a middle grade novel in particular? Well, it it really started when I was uh, looking, watching my granddaughter of seven years old at the time in the playground of her new school. She was born with no fingers on her left hand. And Mm. as I watched her, she was just hiding her little hand up her sleeve and behind her back and watching all the kids. And then eventually she made her way across the tentatively across the playground. And I was just filled with so much sadness that, you know, she had to uh, she had to experience discrimination of that kind and and worry about her little hand. And she does everything any other child does with her little hand, but she's seen as different. And so I started looking around for books that might help her. And there are some wonderful books out there for uh, children who are dealing with difference and discrimination, but none of them really just spoke to me. And so I started thinking, well, I must just, there must just be something else I'm wanting to say. And and that something else really was uh, the the sadness I felt for everyone who turns their back on difference, because we rob ourselves of so many gifts that people have to offer and share. And especially if you are facing the world, um, in, and you have these challenges that you're facing yeah. the world with, you have to be very creative in how you navigate that world. And we need diversity and we need, to, especially in today's environment, we need people who see the world differently and who are experimenting with innovative ways of doing things. And we are desperately in need of that right now. So I wanted to write a book that reached out to um, the experience of someone facing those kinds of challenges of being different, but also bring forth, you know, what we're missing when we shy away from someone who's just a little different. Yeah, I'm I'm curious what drew you to to write a book like that in the fantasy genre versus something that might be more sort of straight fiction or or uh, right. any other genre that is that is uh part of the sort of kids fiction world. Um I hadn't really planned it. I didn't plot it out. I just want but I wanted to find some way of bringing to the fore these networks of energies if you like that are mm. just these forces that we all we all experience that get in the way of our really being who we are and and listening to our inner wisdom. So I wanted to, some way of capturing that uh, those kinds of obstacles that we face, and that's how I came up with some creatures of another world that they don't want Morgwith to uh, discover the power of her difference. That's very threatening to them because they use the Earth world for their resources, and so that's sort of how I came up with the idea of Shulduff and Gorth who were these creatures who are shapeshifters and they create all kinds of problems for Morgwith as she goes about trying to make friends. And that's really what she, she just wants to make a good friend. Well, and it's interesting, too, to position them as as shapeshifters and illusionists when what she is wanting is to fit in, right? She's, she wants to fit in, but she's different. And they are, I think, sort of antagonistic to to the world in general, but they have that power to to fit in. Right. That's interesting. An interesting perspective. I hadn't sort of thought about it that way. 
uh, of course, Gorth and Shulduf have their own story. Yeah. You know, Shulduf has captured Gorth, who's the last surviving sole survivor of his species. And he's sort of very victimized by her. So and I wanted to bring that out, too, you know, that uh, the feeling of being of being a victim and, and incapable of exercising any power over your situation. And I certainly didn't want that in my main character. So I created that character around Gorth. Mm. And of course, he discovered he has his own journey in this narrative. Yeah, he's a sort of he's a sort of antihero of sorts. <laughs> right. <laughs> So you worked as a social worker for much of your life and, yes, and working yes. closely with, with children who experience developmental challenges in their families. Has that work influenced your writing? And how did those... Absolutely. Yeah. So how, how did those experiences shape the kind of book that you chose to write and the characters in it? Well, you know, I worked a lot with children who had extremely challenging um, situations. Their bodies just didn't work for them. You know, some of them had one one in particular, one little guy had a tracheotomy and he couldn't even make a sound in mm-hmm. his at all. And, and the only way he could get attention would be to pull his trach. And so he was in hospital a lot because he only had four minutes to live if he this trach. And that little kid, I was called in to sort of develop a support plan for the parents because he kept appearing, he kept turning up in the healthcare system and he was a problem for everybody. And his little limbs were like little rubber limbs. They didn't work very well and he couldn't make a sound. But that child was absolutely filled with joy. I mean, every time I would see him, his whole, and his mother or anyone that he knew, his whole face would light up. And I found this a lot when I worked with uh, with families who had kids with major disabilities who couldn't swallow on their own, who couldn't uh, sit up on their own. And they would just beam with joy. And you can mm. tap into that joy. You know, they have something to teach us about being in the world and still being able to find joy. I always thought that was so heartwarming to me. I got so much from the kids. As much as I was able to do for them, I certainly got so much from them. So that certainly influenced. And that's why I felt so sad when you see uh, the isolation of, of someone who's who's faced with any kind of challenges for fitting in. What is so sad about that is what we miss by not being able to access what they have to offer. And so that sort of was a major theme throughout the book, always challenging what we think of as as normal or what we think of as we know that this is a certain way and then we find out it really isn't a certain way. So I tried to introduce that throughout the book in different ways. Well, and it's challenging to our conception of what is valuable in the world and in other people. Right. So when the magpie calls is your first novel, it's uh, I think your first work of fiction. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. But you have actually worked as a visual artist for quite a long time. I'm curious how the medium of writing changes your relationship to or understanding of your creativity compared to painting. Well, writing is very different than painting altogether. I think writing is much as a much harder craft than painting. Why is that? Well, because in writing, your conceptual mind is constantly trying to get to the fore. It's constantly trying to write down concepts as opposed to those deeper kinds of feelings that you want to get at. Mm. In painting, you don't really have that. You have your medium and it's already abstract. You might have a concept if you're doing some realistic work, but if you are just exploring with paint, you have a lot more freedom to do that than you do in writing. So I had to come up with ways that would get past the conceptual mind and let some of those deeper feelings and thoughts come to the fore. 
And so I used a lot of different techniques that my very good teacher friend, Andre Couturier, taught me, you know, he, friend he of the wrote show. a book. Yes, he, he, he wrote a book on exactly how to get past all of those conceptual uh, mind games that get in, in our way. So writing is very different. I found it a lot, a lot more challenging. But I also think it influences, it, it influences painting too. You know, when I came to design the cover, I had never designed a cover or, or done any kind of visual work like the cover. I did it with a computer. I, I was learning a program, an artist program to do it. And I don't think I could have sat down and mapped out, you know, exactly what I wanted, but I could work I could just keep working with the layers and the images would just come forward, you know. Yeah. So it did influence that too, you know, just al just allowing yourself actually to get past that concept yeah. of what you're trying to create here. I think that what you're talking about, that sort of way that the conceptual mind keeps trying to assert itself, it must be even harder to deal with when you're writing a novel that, that involves children and is for children, because there is a level of simplification in those novels, but you can't talk down to kids, right? If you tell them, right. this is what I'm thinking, they're going to get bored and throw the book across the room. How right. do you manage that? I tried very hard to stay out of the lecture mode. I tried always to raise questions and not answers. So uh, throughout the novel, any time I would read it and I would come across something that sounded at all like a lecture, it just had to come out, you know, and you just had to find a way of creating that question in, in the reader's mind as opposed to the answer already being there. Hmm. Join KSQD every Wednesday morning for the award-winning program On Being, hosted by Krista Tippett. What does it mean to be human? How do we want to live? And who will we be to each other? Each week, On Being explores these questions with a new discovery about the immensity of our lives. On Being airs Wednesday at 9 a.m. here at KSquid 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer Cheryl Harowitz, whose middle grade novel, When the Magpie Calls, tells the story of a young girl with extraordinary powers. When it comes to any kind of art, whether it is painting, whether it is writing, whether it is, I don't know, sculpture, any, any other type of medium, what inspires you? Sometimes it's just wanting to get into my own world and be totally 100% engaged. I mean, when you're working on a book or you're working in visual art, whatever you're doing, it is completely all-encompassing. I mean, I once missed a plane because I was sketching a beautiful man in the waiting area at the gate, and I was so intent on sketching him. He was this tall African man, you know, beautifully dressed, and I just started to draw, and I was so engaged with it. They all let, they all got on the plane, you know, <laughs> and, and, and I'm still there, you know. I was still... I was still sketching. So I love that feeling of just being completely 100% engaged. And so anytime I feel like, well, through, through COVID, for example, I had quite a few challenges because I had a family, some family in England who were having a really tough time during COVID and I couldn't be there to help them. And, and that was kind of tough. And I turned to my, well, I turned to my book. I really got engaged with all the characters. I mean, they become part of your whole world. 
in your imagination, they take on a very real personification, you know. I love that. So sometimes it's just me wanting to get into uh, that mode. And other times I'm just out and around and things look so beautiful. I just want to sit down and try to capture the feeling of that. You know, once I went out every morning before dawn because the sunrises were so spectacular, you know, and I did a whole series of Mm. sunrises because they were you were experiencing the whole sunrise all over again, right? Yeah. And the nice thing about that is I could I could bring in the birds where I wanted them and, and just get that whole feeling into my painting, you know. So sometimes it's the environment and sometimes it's just a tough time I'm going through and I want to get into that mind state or physical, it's a physical state as well. Tell me a bit about your writing process. Are you somebody who plans out every piece or are you, you know, the terms planner or cancer? Right. No, I'm not a planner. (laughs) I mean, I had never written a a work of fiction before. So um, and I didn't want to just sit down and write a plot because I thought if I wrote down a plot, just like in painting and you figure you want everything just lined up perfectly. I didn't want that kind of book. I wanted a book that that I was also exploring. Um, these ideas because I really didn't have everything sorted out in my mind. I had these feelings, but I didn't have I didn't have it all sorted out. So the writing process for me was partly discovering for myself what it is I wanted to say. Hmm. So um, I did not plan out anything. I would just get into a a mindset of here's the scene. If I'm if I'm at the farm, then I'm sitting at the farm, and the scenes just sort of almost the characters start to write themselves because they have their own. Once you've developed a character, they have their own way of behaving, you know. So so I would do a lot of free writing with pen and paper because I free write much better with pen and paper than I do. My typing isn't so great, and I keep going back and correcting. So I do a rewrite and sometimes I might only get two or three sentences out of two pages of writing but those are the sentences I'm really after you know that I want to really explore further so that's been my process and then of course you run into some problems if you don't plan out your whole plot because all these things (laughs) just come to the fore and then you've got to sort them out and figure out a plot after the fact you know right so talk talk me through the sort of editing part of that process as well what does that look like well, at some point, it has to. You have to step back into the mode of reader and not writer, and try to see if it makes sense to them or if it keeps them engaged. So, anytime I would, as I said before, if I saw a lecture coming up anywhere, well, that that would go. Other times, the sequence of events were just too confusing. They were just too too dovetailed, or mm-hmm. and I would just have to figure out a different way of presenting those ideas rather than in the linear way I had that wasn't quite working. So I tried to get into a reader mode. And then I had kids read my book, you know, read it. I had several Mm -hmm. drafts and they read read them and and gave me all kinds of feedback, especially feedback on Shulda. She was the most difficult character because I didn't want to pin her down. I didn't want to pin down a devil or a demon or I wanted it to be much more fluid and much more in the experience that we have of these forces that get in our way of being true to ourselves, you know. So I was constantly trying to figure out Shulda. (laughs) And so it was quite confusing for quite a long time. And then I just had to come up with some purpose. I mean, she has to have a purpose why she's doing that, right? <laughs> <laughs> of course, there's always got to right. be motivation. 
Tell me about some of the feedback that the kids gave you. What were they drawn to and what did they struggle with? Right. They were certainly drawn to the bullying part. You know, the one mm-hmm. or two of them could certainly identify with the school ground. And the that was all pretty accurate, according to the kids. They felt that the scenes at school were right on. And um, that felt good to me. And they were confused over shoulder, as I say. What else did they say? Some of them didn't read the whole thing. They make these little comments in the margins, and then there'd be two chapters with nothing there at all. So you don't know whether they read the whole thing. And if they didn't read the whole thing, then I'd ask them where they got where they got turned off, and they could tell me. They could tell me that. You know, sometimes they were just doing other things. You know. Yeah. Kids are used to. uh, They're used to. uh, A lot of kids now are used to very short readings. You know. Smaller sessions. Smaller. Everything is more packaged. Yes, everything is. Speaking of of Shulduf Shulduf and the sort of difficulties that you had pinning her down, how did you approach the world building in this novel? Because it it takes place in what I would mostly call a contemporary setting, but with these very ancient elements, both in terms of these supernatural creatures of of Shulduf and Gorth, and also, I think, in terms of, um, oh, gosh, now I'm blanking on her name. Is it Orwin? Olwyn? Alwyn. Alwyn, yes. Alwyn, and then some of the sort of things that she's connected to in, right. in the past of this place. So how did you approach building out these different parts and, and bringing them together cohesively? Well, I also wanted to bring into bring into the mix the our, our sense of connection with past and I mean, past going back millennia, you know, we have yeah. these these impulses that are wired into us from from way, 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 way back, you know. So I wanted to bring that presence into the I wanted to bring that past, you know, into the present somehow. And so that happens with her dreams. She dreams of being a bird at, at a lot of the time. And and so our connection with nature is part of the uh, is part of that narrative yeah. that we are so connected ju- with our past as well as everything in nature we are so much a part of. So I wanted to bring that in, and I felt that uh, bringing in the dreams and being a bird and the and these visualizations she would have. She's just a very uh, sensitive child who's who's has access to this information, you know. And I think a lot of younger kids do have access to a lot more. Hmm. And then we grow out of it, you know, as we especially as we get to be nine, ten, eleven, twelve, and also the concept of death and dying, you know. Yeah. I mean Shoulder lives in a world where there's no there's no death, but of course there's no life either. And so um I try to bring that in because you know at the age of nine or ten it's the idea of death is a very new yeah. kind of idea. So I was wanting to bring in the idea of death as being a very natural and welcome part of our life because we really we don't have any life without death. Mm. Yeah, it's sort of the thing that gives it meaning. You know, it's a light touch, but I that's that's where that came from. Yeah. Okay. Um. So one more question before I'm going to ask you to read a little bit. I want to know what kind of challenges you faced in the process of crafting this book as a first time author. Right. Well, what were the challenges? Well, the first challenge was, will I ever finish this? Will I ever be able to finish this? Because, you know, I'd get so far and then I'd be completely blocked and not know where to go next or whatever. And that's where I would rely on some of Andy's um methods you know i would just go i would just go in into one of his methods to try and generate some more plot or some more yeah. 
and I just be I just really trusted that process. I just learned to really trust it to not worry about you know not worry about getting it all right or not worry about you know getting to the end. But let's just take this part now where you're stuck, and let's try one of these exercises and let's see what turns up. And something always did. Yeah, I I think that's such a that's such a profound thing to realize that almost any task you do, it's it's really about just finding the piece of it that's manageable. I have been, I've been doing visual art for basically the first time um, over oh. the last couple of years. I started in ceramics and then I took a drawing class and I was somebody who could like barely draw stick figures before. And it just shocks me to see how much of, how much of the stuff that I thought I could never do. It's really about just okay, we'll just do this one little part and don't think about the big picture and then do the next one little part. <laughs> and then by the end of it, you have something that feels feels real and feels whole from having done all of those little pieces. It's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah, that's a good way of explaining that. I haven't heard anyone discuss, describe their visual art process that way, but that's exactly what I did with the book. Otherwise, it's just overwhelming. Yeah, completely. It just and traps you. It just freezes you. You know, you're just completely numbed by the overwhelming task of having to finish this whole thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> right. Join KSQD the second Sunday each month for Intersections, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Intersections takes you to the crossroads of ideas, mapping the contours of belief and knowledge through the stories and lives of influential voices. Meet notable people in diverse fields who are asking important questions. Their experiences and perspectives challenge us to pursue lives of meaning and purpose. Tune into Intersections Sunday evening at 6, KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD. Many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer Cheryl Harowitz, whose middle grade novel, When the Magpie Calls, tells the story of a young girl with extraordinary powers. Well, you have finished it, so, so let's hear a little bit from it. Can I ask you to read us the first chapter? Sure. On the eve of her birth, a vision had appeared to each of them in a dream. An old woman moves toward them in slow motion, her long gray hair flowing behind her. You have been chosen, she whispers. This child about to be born is no ordinary child. In the shadows, a dark form moves and slithers out of sight. You must protect her, the woman whispers, her image dissolving in a fog of mist. Suddenly, an explosion. They are awake. In the dark, they reach for each other and squeeze hands in silence, waiting. All is quiet. In a flash, they turn to face each other, knowing they had shared the same dream. The sun emerges slowly from behind purple hills across the meadow beyond their window. The mother hands the newborn baby to the father as first chirps and tweets of the early risers announce the new day. He takes the baby carefully, cradling her in the crook of his arm, barely able to believe the exquisite perfection of her. Finally, he pulls his eyes from the tiny bundle and looks at the mother lying in the bed, softly smiling, their eyes locked from a moment of pure bliss. Morgwith. The name spills from their lips like a breath of magic. Her name is Morgwith, they whisper in one voice. Morgwith leans against the brick wall of her new school. She is tall for her age, with soft eyes, large and brown. Her look steady and curious, like a young doe eager to explore and wary of dangers that exist in this kind of territory. 
girls are lined up at the hopscotch map of England chalked on the playground asphalt. Across the playground, a couple of thrushes argue about who should fetch dinner. Margaret leans back, her long, thick hair spilling down her back, laughing as she looks up. Though she cannot see them amid the thickness of the young, dark leaves, their news is shrieking and shrilling above rooftops and beyond. Whistles about where to get good twigs for nesting, whirs and cacaw, cacaws, announcing who is living with whom. Shree, 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 sending warnings about the cat two doors down. And as always, chirps and weather tweets. To Morgwith, listening to birds deliver news to each other is as natural as listening to her parents after dinner chats, comfortable, warm and familiar. But she has learned that it is not normal to believe you can understand the language of birds. Most believe it is her overactive imagination. Shifting her attention, Morgwith darts a look across the playground at boys scrambling across loop ladders, her eyes shifting to a group of girls huddled together by the fence, laughing. It's week two at Cherry School Academy. She knows all the names of her 20-plus classmates by heart, but she's not one of them, not yet. On another land, unseen by humans, shoulder, born a fungus of muck-slick oily rivers, emerges slowly from the sludge, her bulging eyes shifting from side to side in her small, slug-like head, her tentacles above searching like antennas. We must be extra cautious. She's getting to that age when her curiosity will surface, shoulder pisses, her wide mouth stretched like a seam around her tiny face in a constant grin. As she moves, her large body thins out snake-like, the long tail sliding through green slime oozing from beneath her, spilling over surfaces as she moves. Poisonous gases spout from her tiny nostrils, forming a fog around her. She turns and glances at Gorth before slithering up a blackened tree trunk. Gorth is lying on the ground, gnawing a bone he holds between yellow finger claws, his smooth red-brown hair draped like silk over his lean, weasel-like body. Eyes down, his tail twitches at the sound of shoulder. He does not see her, but her stench is unmistakable. Shoulder slides down the scorched blackened tree. In their human world where everything changes constantly, she sputters, roll dripping from her mouth. Confusion is made easy. Sliding up another thick stump, her tentacles grope through the sticky surface. Time for fun and games. <laughs> Poor skin crawls as Shodoth moves toward him, but he does not move. You must use all your shape-shifting skills to distract her, Shodoth sizzles, sliding her head along his narrow striped snout until her eyes now slits meet his, while I create some illusions. Her head darts up in a quick shake. Her body swells again, the green slime dissolving instantly into a scene. A crowd of children shouting, get him, punch him. All eyes are pivoted on a boy clawing at the face of another boy lying on the ground crying. Shoulder laughs as she swipes her tail and the image disappears, leaving a pool of green slime. Gorth sighs, lost in the memory of his days roaming through forests, playing with his sons and daughters, snoozing in meadows of soft green grass. He closes his eyes, trying to forget what he cannot. Further and further from their homeland, Gorth had wandered across the cracked, dry earth in search of food, thirsty, hot, and hungry like the rest of his herd. Too late, he had tried to warn them, but the hunter, eager to possess their splendid red-brown hides, had chased them down. For hundreds of miles, their bleached skeletons lay scattered across the parched land. Shota's voice is soft. Remember, Gorth, in our realm there is no death. Here we can live 
forever. Gorth casts his eyes on blackened trees, their branches broken, hanging limp and lifeless. Dropping his head on his feet, he closes his eyes. Her world, yes, but she can't survive without a visit to Earth now and then, spreading her poison, destroying everything she touches. This child of nine must not discover her own unique abilities. As Shoulder speaks, a dark cloud of hissing gas bursts from her tiny nostrils, filling the air with her putrid stench. That child could be the death of us. Gorth cocks his ear toward the sound. Yes, once they discover what the child knows, Sholdaf is done for. He raises his head. There's no death here, but no life either. Sitting up, he shakes the foul air from his nostrils, his long, silky hair rippling across his thin body as he stands. Walking slowly toward a pile of dry bones, he wraps his jaw around the largest and waits. We must not be fooled into thinking we can afford to wait, Shoda snaps. She is already aware that she is different from the others. We must stop her before it's too late, and the magic of the earth world becomes widespread knowledge. Gorth drops to the ground again, his nose touching the dry bone clutched between his feet, his eyes closed. He does not see the thin, long tail curl and lift above him. Crack! Shoulder's tail snaps beside him. In an instant, she snatches his bone, wrenching it from his grip. Gorth snarls but keeps his head down. He is alert now, tense, still, and silent. You really are a pathetic creature, Gorth. Lost your voice forever, silent. I don't know why I bothered to save you. Shoulder drools, the thin mouth brushing past his ears. Do as I say, or I will dispose of you like that, she whips her tail in the air, smacking it to the ground. There are other shape-shifting creatures in the earth world, becoming extinct like you. I have my pick of them, you know. Keeping his head low, Gorse steals a glance toward the place where his bone was tossed. Are you listening to me? Shoulder hisses. You must keep her distracted, stir things up, get close to her. A soft chuckle escapes from her mouth. Special abilities, indeed, she sneers, her swelled-up body quivering in delight. She will never discover them. Thank you so much for reading that. Thank you. So without spoiling the plot too much, what can you tell us about the significance of the name Morgwith? How did you land on that name for your protagonist? I wanted a name that was um, completely different and that a name she might be made fun of for. So, I mean, she looks pretty like any other little kid. And so I wanted her to stand out in a way that people saw that she was different. I also wanted this name to come from somewhere else. And I didn't know where that else was going to be until I wrote the Morgwith legend that appears later in the book. At the time, I just knew it had to come from somewhere in her distant past. And I mm. and the little old woman that appears in her dreams um was a was a preface to our our meeting Alwyn, but at that time I at that time I didn't really I didn't really have anything more than that I didn't have the legend figured out at all, I just knew that I wanted her to have a heritage that came from way back. The second and fourth Sundays of the month, KSQD presents Faith Matters, hosted by Seth Shapiro. Faith Matters is an interfaith discussion with leaders from a variety of religious and spiritual traditions. The discussion is wide-ranging and respectful, and call-ins are welcome. Tune in to Faith Matters, Sunday evening at 6, on KSQD 90.7 FM and KSQD.org. KSQD, many voices, one station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer Cheryl Harowitz, whose middle-grade novel, When the Magpie Calls, tells the story of a young girl with extraordinary powers.
It's interesting because there is so much pre-Saxon mythology in the British Isles. Uh, yes. Were you inspired by some of that in, in the sort of shape or the themes that the Morgoth legend took? Yes, very much so, because, you know, I grew up in England and I went to school in England, so I'm familiar with that uh, that culture and, 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 you know, finding things, always finding things on people dig up things in their backyard that are from the Saxon days all the time, you know, and so that's very much a part of, of your history. And so um, when uh, we discover through Alwyn's questioning that Morgwith's mother comes from Wales and her father comes from Cornwall. I came up with this idea of a diff of a, a language that is gone because that's another thing we lose. Mm. I read about five years ago we we lose two languages a, a week. You know, when you lose a language, you lose all the wisdom and everything that goes with that language. So that was another way of bringing in the idea of a past and a language and and wisdom and teachings that are not available once you lose that language. But Alwyn is able to understand the language yeah. further on in the book of course they discover a book written in the cornish welsh language that uh, alwyn reads to them yeah I i'm curious did you do any research into those existing legends as you were as you were developing your own or is it entirely it's entirely made up <laughs> it's entirely made up <laughs> i mean there's all kinds of i mean king arthur legends go all all over oh, yeah. england King Arthur was absolutely everywhere. So there's always legends available. Uh, I didn't go and read, you know, I didn't even read a lot of children's literature, fantasy literature, because I didn't want to be influenced by, mm. it would be too easy to try and copy somebody else or or to get too much involved with uh, someone, some other legend. So I didn't, I didn't do any of that. Mm. I didn't do any research on that. I literally just made it up. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I think is in a lot of those legends, and that you mentioned earlier too, right? This novel is largely about the relationship between humans and nature, and there's a sort of theme around, or a sort of analogy between the discomfort people feel around uh, Morgwith's differences and the discomfort they feel about having to see themselves as sort of a part of nature. I'm curious mm -hmm. what drew you to some of those themes around nature in particular. Well, getting back to just the sense of our being so connected with nature and our disconnect with nature, with our reliance on uh, materialistic views of science, we don't explore consciousness at all. And uh, I think if we were to explore consciousness more, we would discover a lot more about our connection with nature. So yes, it's through there. You know, there are times in one of the one of the conversations between Lisa and Teresa, Lisa is telling Teresa that she just makes it up because she just wants to be her friend and she's she, she really doesn't have any special powers at all. And here's Teresa with her iPad in front of her coming across a title that says trees can talk, you know. So yeah. there's always this juxtaposing between what we think we know and, and what we, d we really don't know. So um, I feel very sad that we don't have a, a much broader view of our consciousness and our connection with nature and so that's what inspired much of that and you know I read a lot of uh, I read anthropology and I read uh, some lay people science because I'm not a scientist at all and I do read scientists who are exploring consciousness like yeah. Rupert Sheldrake and so on so I wanted to bring those themes and those ideas into the novel. 
I want to talk about Shuldaf for a moment, and, and particularly her realm and, and how you conceive of it, because it is, it, it's represented in the book as being separate, but something that she transits between and being a place that she could potentially bring other people, bring, bring people from, from the sort of human realm. How would you describe what that realm is, what its place is in, in sort of the structure of the universe? How would I describe it? Yeah. Right. Well, I didn't really go into too much building of, of that world. I really just described it as a place where if all you're interested in is taking resources and not giving anything, because she doesn't give anything, she just takes all the time, that that's a pretty dead kind of world. You know, there's no life in a world like that. So that's where the idea came up of, you know, creating this blackened world of nothing living. So, of course, she she does live there and she needs the resources of Earth to survive. So I just decided that there would be a portal for her to transfer back and forth between Earth and and her world. But of course, they can't stay in the Earth world except for Gorth, who can, he can shapeshift into other beings, which he does. But she doesn't shapeshift. She just creates illusions and disappears, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I want to I go broad a bit for a minute, again for a minute. What's the purpose of art for you? Why do, why do you paint? Why do you write? Gosh, it's just, uh, as I was saying before, art art is a way of connecting in a completely different way with yourself, really, because whatever you write is from you. So you sort of have a chance to put it out there and then see it reproduced, you know, so you have a conversation going with yourself all the time and all, all the time you're discovering new things. For example, I had no idea when I wrote the characters that some of them I did recognize, like Mr. Evans is one of, as a teacher I had, so that was very easy to write Mr. Evans. But other characters, uh, like Mrs. Finnegan, for example, she's a combination of people I uh, have come across. You know, she's, she's a wannabe uh, pretentious person. But um, I didn't realize until I started to write my own memoir that actually that person came right out of my own childhood uh, before I was five years old. And I didn't even recognize that until after the fact. And I think that's what art does. It shows you parts of yourself that you would not otherwise have access to. To me, that's what's so enriching about any kind of art that you actually can see part of yourself represented and you you might not have known that that existed before. Yeah, so so beyond some of these individual characters that that are sort of drawn from your life, what kinds of things did you discover about yourself through the process? Well, I discovered I could write a book and and fiction. I didn't think I could to begin with. I mean, that was that was engaging. What, what can I say? I mean, I would get into the characters themselves and then it wasn't until much later that I recognized some of those characters, like, for example, my relationship with my own mother, even though she was nothing like Mrs. Finnegan. My mother was a very stoic person, but she suffered a lot in silence. Nevertheless, my relationship with her was is very much like the relationship that Teresa has with her mother. You know, she treats her with kid gloves. She's very careful around her. She's always trying to please her. She's you know, and that that was something I discovered about myself that I hadn't recognized before. I, I didn't mm. I didn't realize that was my relationship with my mother until 
after I wrote this book. And then I'm reading that and I'm thinking, well, gee, that's just how I was with my mother. (laughs) (laughs) Something familiar about it. (laughs) Yes, yes. I also heard you mention that you're writing a memoir right now. Can you tell me about that? Well, my own story is a little is a little interesting because five years ago I discovered my father's family and um, I didn't think I had another family. There were just the five of us, my mother and the four of us. And uh, I was born in a little uh, village along the St. Lawrence River in Canada, the village of less than a thousand people. And they had just moved there a few months earlier. And uh, my father was this very charismatic person and very smart and very good at hooking people into his ideas and visions. But they very mostly didn't materialize. And so when I was three months old, he left completely. Hmm. And um, he left behind a lot of debt. He left behind broken promises. So, you know, we we were pretty pretty much outcasts in that little tiny environment, which is another thing I discovered through the book that, you know, I actually yeah. was writing partly of my own experience of being an outcast because everyone in the village certainly suspected him. And so uh, I started to write about those first 10 years because my mother had to all of a sudden, we lived in a rooming house and it was just on two floors in a rooming house by the canal. And uh, she had absolutely no money whatsoever. And he just up and left and we never, ever saw him again. Mm. And so I started to try and piece together what happened, what happened to him. Well, I don't still know what happened to him entirely. But when I found through DNA that I had a sister in England and all kinds of um, aunts, uncles and cousins and so on right here on the West Coast, they started to tell me a little more about my father. Hmm. So uh, I started to write about that. I mean, he uh, they didn't know what had happened to him either. So there's quite a story. A mystery of sorts. <laughs> yes. And there's, yeah. So that's been quite an experience. And it sort of happened right in the middle of my writing, uh, my writing, uh, my novel. And so I sort of got distracted there for a uh, almost two years because it was so it was so profound I really didn't expect to feel what I did when I discovered uh, on uh, the family tree a photograph of my father when he was in his teens and I turned to my husband and I and even though none of the names meant anything to me at all there was no relatives to my name because he used a false name and I looked at this photo and I said to my husband that's my father and he came over and he looked and I, I said, look, 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 look at his, look at his, eyes, look at his eyebrows, look at his ears, look at his mouth. And that's my father. And I he said, well, I guess you could think of it maybe, but it turned out it, it certainly was. And so yeah. they were able to fill me in a lot on the family history, although most of the most of my relatives had passed on. But uh, I may I have made a real connection with um, with my family on my father's side that we didn't know existed even. So that led me to explore all of that. Well, it sounds like an interesting story for sure. Yes. Join KSQD every Sunday night at 10 for the Evil Eye Radio program with host Forrest Reed. It's a unique exploration of Yiddish folklore, Jewish mysticism, and Kabbalah. Folk tales, superstitions, and wisdom are interwoven with atmospheric music. That's Sunday nights at 10 here on KSQD 90.7 FM and online at ksqd.org. 
Many Voices, One Station. If you're just joining me, my guest today is writer Cheryl Harowitz, whose middle grade novel, When the Magpie Calls, tells the story of a young girl with extraordinary powers. Turning back to this book, to When the Magpie Calls, what were your favorite parts to write? I enjoyed the farm scenes. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And, um, you know, I hadn't even I hadn't even planned on writing um, a farm scene at all. But I was on a retreat with Andy. And uh, one of the things that he used to do was what one of the things he did for his students was take them and guide them to different places, environments and have them write from those different environments. And he took me to a tractor and sat me in a tractor. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I started writing about a visit to a farm, right? <laughs> it came out of all of that, you know. Yeah. So uh, so uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was a surprise to me. You know, that's what was nice about it, that as I was writing that, it was just it was just joyful because I had my characters already. They could r- practically write themselves by then. You know, I had Aunt Sue and I had uh, Lisa and I had Teresa and Morgwith. And then Alwyn turned up in the middle of all that where I hadn't planned anything about where she would turn up. But she just turned up on the farm living in a little <laughs> gamekeeper cottage. And With that's her where all the legend and everything came from that. You know, it just came from that one one little tiny little thing. Just go sit somewhere else and write from that spot, yeah. you know. And so I thoroughly enjoyed that. Because it was pretty effortless, that part. Yeah, that's great. You're writing a memoir right now. Do you see yourself writing another work of fiction? Well, you know, I, I think about this novel is left in a place where I could certainly pick up and write another one. The characters are all there and um, it's easy. It would be easy enough to come up with. In fact, this time around, I think I would, uh, I'm sort of thinking of a plot, you mm. know, that ahead of time. So it's not quite as challenging by the end, when I've just been letting my subconscious take over and then I have to sort out the mess, you know. <laughs> Can you tell me a bit about the books and the authors that you enjoy reading? Oh, uh, gosh. I read, I've just finished reading The Immense World by Ed Yong, hmm. and that's all about the different um, abilities that various species have and their way of uh, opening up secret realms that we know nothing about. So I love reading about uh, nature. Uh, I also read uh, novels. I just finished reading uh, The Woman in the Other Room, which was about Hedy uh, Lamar and her story as a scientist. So I I like to read uh, novels about um, other people. I read anthropology. Um, I just, oh gosh, what's... What's the name of one of them? Ward. I read. I read Rupert Sheldrake, Past is Present, and uh, some of the other titles. Um, Science Unleashed, I think, is another one. So, I read a cross section of of books. Hmm. I've always got a book on the go. And then I read another book recently, which was very interesting. It was my last forty days, and that was a book about. After death, finding your way to becoming a spirit. Hmm. Pretty wide cross section. Yes, yes. One thing that I, I was curious about because you, of course, this is your first work of fiction, you've written it in retirement. What advice would you have for listeners who are interested in writing and maybe in particular in writing novels, but worry that it's too late or that they've missed their chance? It's not too late. It's never too late, actually. 
I mean, I'm 78 years old, right? I would say just start writing and don't worry about finishing. Just get started and then just keep going and don't worry about finishing it. Just just keep going. You know, as I said before, you just kind of take a, a small piece and and just write that and don't worry about the rest of it. And you will find that you will have a body of work that you will be happy about. Because one thing I have found that every time I do put the effort into and really get engaged into in writing or in in visual art, but we're talking about writing right now, is I feel thrilled to bits when I produce something and it's mm. there and I can read it. And then if anyone else allows me to read it to them or they like it, that it's it's absolutely thrilling. No matter what happens to that piece you've written, you, you can't help but feel really thrilled with yourself for having done it. It makes you want to do things. That's what art does. It makes you want to do. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. Cheryl Harowitz, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. You can learn more about Cheryl at her website, CherylHarowitz.com. Catch Story Behind the Story the first Friday of every month from 5 to 6 p.m. on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other shows, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. Story Behind the Story is produced and edited for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our mixing engineer is Lanier Sammons. He also wrote our theme.